Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And we are friggin' hot. If I had something better to do, it would be just sitting in a... In an ice bath. Yes, exactly. But this isn't bad. No. Or I'd walk down to the water and yeah. get a cool ocean breeze. Yeah. So, well, mine wouldn't be bad, but I'm still having... I think I had this the last episode. I'm still having the brown tail moth. Uh, issue the pharmacy never got back to me and it's been almost three weeks with my appointment because they've got so many people with the issue i guess the new york times even did a story on it i had a dream about it last night that when i scratched it these stringy like worms came out of it oh thank you yeah it was gross yeah but it was only a dream so you have an update don't you i do have a yeah a very short update okay um our episode 69 was called catching murder with honey yeah and it was about i'm not going to go into the details but basically a guy got in a confrontation with another guy when his wife was trying to pick up her honey from the honey making place and, and you're talking about was. honey not her honey like her the person she loves it was but... a bee she worked his wife is a beekeeper and right. she worked with another beekeeper and they had a shop together and she went to pick up her honey and the beekeeper's family tried to keep her from getting them honey and there was a confrontation between the beekeeper son-in-law and the husband of the beekeeper woman and the woman's husband shot somebody and he died when he went on trial he pled self-defense he got convicted because the law in maine we discuss it more in the um at length in the episode 69 but the law in maine is called requirement to retreat and self-defense and there's a lot of states that have this in their self-defense law and that means if you are in a situation where you feel that your life might be in danger but you have a way to get away, if you can step away, if you can get in your car and drive away, if you can retreat and you're not on your property, then you don't have a self-defense claim if you shoot somebody or if you kill somebody. So this news story in March, uh, March 22nd, Representative John Andrews of Paris, Maine, who is a libertarian, wants to remove the right to retreat requirement from the Mm. self-defense law, which would make it more like a stand-your-ground law. They had a story on um, Channel 8, WMTW, and they interviewed Merrill Kimball, who was the guy that shot, he was the beekeeper's husband, and he's a lobster man. (laughs) The guy he shot's also a lobster man. Merrill Kimball claims he did not understand the right to retreat requirement when he was in on trial there was and we discussed this in the um in the episode but he had a chance to to plead guilty to manslaughter and he would get a minimum of four years in prison and he refused it and he said the reason he refused it was because he was defending himself he was scared for his life and he didn't understand how the law was that you have to prove that you had no way to get away his Lawyer was Daniel Lilly, who we mm. talk about a lot, and the judge said, "I know his lawyer." The and Daniel judge, Lilly is dead, so nobody he's could ask dead. him. Yeah, but the judge said, "I know Daniel Lilly." Explained it to him, and the judge, in when you're in court for something like that, the judge will make sure that you understand right. things, or he'll ask you if you They'll understand. Ask, and a lot of times people say yes when they really don't. Right, but. That's not the judge's fault. But as we saw, right, and as we saw in our last episode with Gerald Goodale, you know, that whole transcript of um, Jim Mitchell, Goodale's lawyer, explaining to him 
why it wouldn't be a good idea for him to take the stand and stuff, you see the links attorneys go to to explain this stuff to people. And also, I want to say, too, I think it's interesting the state rep is bringing this up because I was trying to, I haven't looked it up, but just trying to kind of rack my brain. It's not like we have a lot of murders to begin with, but I think that the beekeeper one is the last one that used that defense. And so you kind of wonder what is spurring him to want a stand your ground law in Maine. I know, it's stupid. And so Merrill Kimball is in his seventh year of his 25-year term, and he's like, I know it can't help me, but maybe it can help somebody else. And it's like, you know what? I don't really have much concern over no. people that go around shooting people. And my guess is that the state rep is just another, like, Second Amendment thing. Yeah. I think it would be more effective to try to limit people going around with loaded guns and using them to solve problems. And not surprisingly, the ACLU is against this change to the law because they're commie liberals like us. So anyways, that was my, it was kind of a semi-update. And you have a kind of an update. I I don't really have an update, but I have a few topics that I'll keep brief. Just things I want to, well, first of all, I thought I had a Jelaine Maxwell update her trial has been set for November, so but also Ooh, there's wait. a there's a documentary out that I'll watch maybe before our next episode. So I don't want to comment. I've read a couple brief things about it because I really don't like to read a lot about stuff before I watch it. Yeah. Um. So that's kind of an update, but kind of not. And we talked about Jelaine Maxwell somewhere in the mid to high seventies episodes. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. And I just have one comment. When people wonder about cold cases and why things don't necessarily get solved and and, you know police are human beings and it's all up to how they investigate things and stuff but i was listening to a podcast about a triple murder apparent triple murder the bodies have never been found of these three women and i won't go into the whole thing apparently there's a whole there they're another one of these obsessive internet murders Mm. that i had never heard of before and there's reddits and subreddits and all this shit so i don't want to get into it but the cop who investigated it they went to the house and the women it was a mother and her teenage daughter and yeah yeah the daughter's the friend, right yeah. who had just graduated from high school mm-hmm. that day but yes. the cop said it was like the rapture of course this is in the south uh-huh. um you know that they had just disappeared like people who don't know the rapture yes. is when everybody is just lifted up to heaven from yeah, where we'll they're standing something about that today Mm-hmm. I said there's something similar to that in my thing today. Anyway, go on. Interesting. And so the podcast host said to him, but what did you really think happened? And he goes, well, it could have been the rapture. And I'm like, if the cop is approaching it from these three people disappearing could have been the rapture, <laughs> then we've got a problem. Yeah. But anyway, so that I just wanted to remark about that. But my bigger topic is, first of all, cliches. You know, we use them too. But I, I was thinking, listening to this podcast, the one I'm, I was just referring to and a couple others, maybe the reason we haven't reached the upper echelon of the podcast world is because we have never used the cliche, unpack, as in unpack the information. Well, I'm going to unpack a lot of information. We have never used... <laughs> The cliche, we're going to take a deeper dive. No. no. And we have never used the cliche, we're going to lift the curtain, which means we're going to talk about the process of... So I think maybe if we start weaving those into our... (laughs) 
but but what I really want to say about cliches is I thought of this when that awful um, the Miami Florida condo collapse, oh, which God. just happened a few days before we're recording this. And on the, the first night on the national news, Lester Holt said, it happened without warning. And mm-hmm. I texted you at the time, yes. nothing happens without warning. Exactly. You may not have had any warning. The people in the place may not have had any warning. But it turns out, of course, as the mm-hmm. days have gone by, they did. And I won't get into the whole thing. We're not doing an episode on it, at least not right now. No. That it three years ago, they found severe structural exactly. issues. At the bottom, and anytime something's at the bottom of a 12-story steel and concrete thing, that doesn't bode well for all the tons and tons of steel and concrete above it. Oh my God, I know. But that cliche about things happening without warning, you hear it with that, but you also hear it with things like school shootings, Mm -hmm. domestic attacks and stuff. Domestic killings all the time. Right, and I think... you do talk about a lot. Right. It's up to people, instead of just taking it for granted that things happen, quote-unquote, without warning, and therefore there's nothing that could be done. In fact, in that condo thing, one story, because the Washington Post had some good stories about it yesterday in their Sunday edition, and one, this woman told her, I can't remember if it was her son or whatever, the building was creaking. Ugh. This was a day or two before it happened, so much that it woke her up. Ugh. And what it reminded me of is this huge tree in front of my house. One night, about five years ago, it was warm out. It was May. It was warm out. I had the windows open. And I was lying in bed, and it was a very still night, and I heard what I thought were firecrackers. And I thought it was the old guy, like, on the next block over, setting off firecrackers. I'm like, why is he setting off firecrackers at, like, 1030 at night? And I got up and looked out the window, and I couldn't see them, and I went back to bed, and it was getting closer and closer together. So I'm like, oh that God, noise. So I, scary. Yeah, so I got up and looked out the window again. I'll never forget, my dog Dewey was standing next to Aww. me. No, wait, it must have been Emma, because Dewey Aww. was no longer with us. And all of a sudden, like an explosion, this limb that's actually the size of a good-sized tree itself fell, and it fell toward the house. It landed between my house and the house next door that no one was living in at the time. But you could say... Oh, that happened without warning. But I heard that cracking noise for several hours before. And then my next door neighbor said when she was walking her dog a few days before, she had heard something. And at first she thought it was a squirrel doing something and she couldn't figure out what it was. So just for, I just want to say people should be on the lookout. There are warning signs, red flags, and read The Gift of Fear, (laughs) which isn't about trees. You sneer. I gave it to you. I know I was was laughing because you you bring it up all the time. You know, the advice columnist, Carolyn Hacks. Yes, she always, she always does. And that will help you so things don't Um, happen uh, to you without warning. I just read one, I just read an article on online about a guy whose wife was in the building is she the one who saw the pool deck yes yeah that poor woman i know she saw the pool deck collapse and she's telling her husband who's in colorado right on the phone about it and then all of a sudden he hears a piercing scream and silence oh my god but anyways um, that was horrible so and then one last topic okay and this is nothing new not that I'm this great monument to anti-racism, but five or six years ago when I was still at the newspaper, I started realizing that the the mugshots we got were not consistent. We seem to get a lot more mugshots for black people who are arrested on things than white people. 
And as anybody who listens to this know, Maine's black population is very small. In fact, we're the whitest state in the Union. Sometimes Vermont is. It, it, we go back and forth. But at the time... I tried to get us to establish a policy. And a lot of times you're going to get the mugshots from the police department or the sheriff's department who arrests the person. Mm -hmm. So if they send along a mugshot, okay, we'll use it with the story. And then the people paginating the pages, do I have room for the mugshot? Don't I have room for the mugshot? And I tried to get us to do a policy at the time that we would be consistent with mugshots. Like we would use them. We would tell the people who are paginating the pages to use them that if we didn't get one with an arrest, we would call and ask for one. And if we still didn't get one then put in the story, a mugshot was not available because this whole randomness of putting mugshots in seemed to skew towards black people, Mm -hmm. even though the majority of people arrested in Maine are not black. And it never really, I never really got off the ground because it's hard to fight a battle that nobody else gives a shit about. And I was thinking about that. I've thought about it frequently. I get email blasts from People Magazine, their true crime email, and I notice that when somebody's committed some horrific crime, usually it's a murder or assault on a woman or child or a family, they tend to have a mugshot of the perpetrator when it's black more often than when the person isn't. I know it would be a losing battle to say anything to People magazine, but it's just something that bothers me. And then I noticed when I was watching the news last night, our local news, that a guy was arrested for burglary and they had a big mugshot of this scary looking black guy. And then they had two other crimes that you could tell just by their names, the people were probably white. No mugshots or anything. Mm-hmm. You know, and somebody could argue, well, maybe they didn't have mugshots of the other people, blah, blah, blah. But it's like people yes, are exactly. perpetuating the myth that black men are scary, dangerous criminals. Mm-hmm. And the media is complicit in that. And we need to stop. The media needs to stop doing it. There was something in the Press Herald recently, a letter to the same effect. Why are you always showing mugshots of black people and not white people and they had some editorial saying they're trying to do better i Mm. for my yeah well if they had listened to me if they listened to me six years ago maybe they'd be more on top of it i always want to see the mugshot because i'm curious and want to see what the person looks yes me too but you have to remember too when someone is arrested i know they're not guilty they, they are just charged with a crime and i remember on channel six uh, maybe a year or so ago, there was some. There was a spate of like convenience store robberies. Yes. In Portland, and the they arrested somebody, and the reporter was like, "They arrested the convenience store robber." Blah blah blah. And I'm like, "No, they arrested the person that the police suspect of exactly. being." Exactly. But it's not as hard as you would think to be more consistent with mugshots, but it does take work and it does take an effort. And the universally white management and editorial staffs of Maine's newspapers, I don't think are that interested in it. Uh, It's not that hard. Like I didn't see the letter or the, because I don't get the Press Herald, I get the the, um, Kennebec Journal. They have different letters to the editor. I didn't see that or the editor's note. There are things you can do, which I tried to do five or six years ago to make it happen. One thing is uh, a policy or just don't run them. Don't run them because as much as we like to look at them, and we've had some, not to trivialize it, but we've had some pretty funny ones. Lots of times there's the crying woman with mascara there's the guy with the bed head but 
it is much entertainment value as there may be. We're looking at people last it's times the in worst the worst, day. Mo- yeah. right, worst moment of their life, and they have not been convicted of something. And I think, frankly, that newspapers should just stop running them, and that would I solve know. the problem. The ones I always find weird are that when they're smiling. I know. And I think it's almost like an instinct when you're getting your picture taken. Or it's they're just, just like a- smug assholes who are like, yeah, okay, fuckers, and they smile. Yeah, I don't know. There is a problem with showing them when someone's just been arrested. Um, Right. The argument used to be, well, we also run the court news. But we run the court news in print smaller than normal newsprint because there's so much of it. And we're not running a story with the person's photo. You'd have to look for it months and months and months and months later. I'm not saying we shouldn't have arrests. I'm just saying if they just stopped using mugshots with arrest stories that would solve the problem yes it would so that that's my topic slash rant for okay. the evening well i've got i hope it isn't too lengthy i've got a um that's what she one. said it's a main one i seem to do a lot of main ones and we I, have and you said you didn't want to do a main one i did not the reason I, I came up with this topic was on Facebook, one of the groups I somehow joined was one that has a historic photos of Lost Maine or something like that. And someone posted a, a picture Ooh, I'll have to look for of that. this like place that. that I'm going to do a story of. Ooh. And I was thinking, oh, you know, that I don't know much about this. As usual... I thought this was going to be simple until I started reading about it. In fact, like a lot of them, I thought, oh, I probably won't find much information on this, so it'll be, I hope I have enough information to do a good story. And guess what? Well, I did. Most of the background person I'm going to I'm going to be talking about, Frank Sandford. It's yes. not Samford, it's Sandford. A lot of the newspaper articles miss... Uh, spelled his name but a lot of the background on him is from shirley nelson who wrote a book called fair clear and terrible the story of shiloh maine william hiss Mm. whose 1978 tufts university phd dissertation shiloh frank sanford and the kingdom i didn't get her book because it's probably out of print it's shirley nelson's book super expensive i think she's the daughter of someone that used to live at shiloh yeah there was a book referenced in it might have been a case files podcast and i said oh i'm gonna look for that book i'd like to read that and i looked on amazon and it was like 500 dollars. it's this old paperback from the 70s i'm like fuck that thanks and i did more research and found a lot of william hiss's materials were also on the bates college website i also got biographical information from the 1953 master's thesis of William R. Gordon from the University of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. The thesis title is Frank Sanford and the Holy Ghost in Us Society. And I relied heavily on his thesis for the history of the Holy Ghost in Us Society. Um, a lot of this information, I also checked newspapers.com. Wow, to see you did a lot of work. There were many 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 hundreds of literally thousands of articles some of william gordon's dates are wrong uh, but he does have a lot of quotes like he got a lot of information and like at the end of his dissertation it's like scanned pages of this typewritten thesis he has like for his materials like he has he had written to margaret chase smith and um, other people for information was funny but anyway so let me get started durham maine is a rural town like I, I shouldn't even say it's rural. No, you it's in Maine. About thirty five hundred. Well, one of the reasons I say rural, it doesn't have like a downtown like some of the right. small towns. It's a, it, it's, it has like a four corners. Yeah. Thing. Um, it's halfway between Lewiston, Auburn, and Brunswick, across the Androscoggin River from Lisbon Falls, Maine. 
If you're going north on Route 125, you can take a right at Crossman Corner onto Shiloh Road. Driving Do you want to say Durham's most famous native, what? Stephen King? He was born in Durham. Oh, I know. Driving east, you'll come to Beulah Lane on your left. And if you look to your left up Beulah Lane, you'll see a large white building. Looks like a really large house or an old hotel, maybe. It's four stories with a square center tower that's three stories higher. On top of the tower is a round cupola with a crown-like top that glitters with gold leaf. Well, it doesn't anymore, but it used to. It sits on top of a hill. This building is hard to miss, especially in the midst of the small homes and farms surrounding it. The building, now known as Shiloh Chapel, is the last remaining structure from what once was a complex with 500 rooms, a hospital, kind of, and a school, kind of. And you'll find out later why I think those labels are not exactly accurate. I first heard about Shiloh almost 30 years ago. I read something about it in the in the paper, and there was a photograph of the original buildings, all the buildings. And since I worked in Auburn at the time, I had driven by Shiloh Road a few times, so... Gordon, my ex-husband, and I decided we were going to see if any of it was left because we saw the picture of it and we're like, I never knew there was a building like that in Durham, Maine. We found the building that's still there, the chapel, and it's big. It's like in the middle of these little Durham's, you know, you drive through, it's little roads and farms. And I knew there was some sort of religious community there, but I never knew much about it. Uh, There have been a lot of religious doings in Maine, the Shakers in New Gloucester, Ocean Park, which was a summer community of Free Will Baptists in the late 1800s, early 1990s, down near Saco. It's an old orchard because that's where um, Dan and Kathy, my friends Dan and Kathy, always rent places. Oh, yeah, it's summer. part of Old Orchard. I was yeah. thinking it was near Ferry Beach, but yeah, it's part yeah. of Old Orchard. The uh, Seventh day Adventist Church was founded in Maine in the 1800s. There's other ones too. Interestingly enough, I found that recent studies have shown that Maine is one of the least religious states in the nation mm-hmm. right now in the 21st century. And I'm one of those Me too. Frank Weston Sanford was born into a large farming family on October 2nd, 1862 in Bodenham, Maine. I'm not sure how many kids there were. One source said he was the 10th, and another source says he was from a family of seven children. In any case, it was a big family. Frank's mother, Mary Jane Stinson, was a minister's daughter, and she made sure her children learned the Bible, but she also encouraged reading the classics. Frank was an early and avid reader and a bright boy. I couldn't find out if the children actually went to school or if their mother taught them at home. Either one could have been true. The family attended church regularly at the third Free Will Baptist Church in Bodenham on Ridge Road. The building is still there. It used to be a schoolhouse before it was a church, and it's on the endangered list of historic buildings, and it's a cute little brick building. Do you mean it's on Maine Preservation's Most Endangered Places list? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Because I do an article about that every year. It might be. That's yeah. probably I it. think, anyway. Um, but matter. Ridge Road is the road, which I realized when I came out of Ridge Road, because I went into it the other way, where in Richmond, where the subway and the Irving right. are, that's right. the Ridge Road. And if you drive yeah. down that just a little ways, you'll see this little brick old schoolhouse right. on the I'll left. I'll have to look. So I drive cute. around there a lot. Bodenham and, and Richmond yeah. and Durham and stuff. It's I, such an old... Yeah. It reminds me of, like, when you drive around those areas, too, it's... It's almost, I know it sounds cliche, but it's almost like you're going back in time a lot of times. It just seems very old-timey. Frank's father, James, was a fruit grower. According to Shirley Nelson, Frank was a born leader. Frank was, quote, always the one who drove the horse and steered the boat. In any sports game, he was, quote, always the captain. 
When Frank was 14, his father died, and Frank became a school teacher when he was 16. Frank was athletic and well-built. As a teacher, he used this to his advantage when teaching unruly students. William Hiss wrote that Frank, quote, learned to get boiling mad with effect, to use his anger to control his circumstances. Work was more fun when he was in charge. His pupils adored him for that. If he was angry, his voice roaring, they did what he said in a hurry. The result was diligence and immense pride and elation when they pleased him, end Mm. quote. According to William Gordon, Frank once threw a student through a window, Whoa. but and his, quote, record as a teacher and a disciplinarian was considered excellent by the standards of the day, end quote. <laughs> um, well, I can imagine, you know, he was young. He probably had some kids that were almost the same age as his. In February 1880, Frank went to a revival meeting at his mom's church. Uh, while there, he was moved by the words of a man who said, Lord, you know we have no promise of the morrow. Frank went again the following night and decided to throw away his tobacco and convert. He later wrote, I thought of the worldly enjoyment I would lose and of what my young associates would say. I remember thinking something like this. I ought to be ashamed of doing what is wrong, and have I fallen so low that I'm actually ashamed to do what is right? Is it possible that I become so cowardly that I'm afraid to be true to the man who died for me? End quote. Hmm. And he's talking about Jesus. In case yeah, I you got know. Yeah. In, May, <laughs> in May of 1880, he was baptized as a free will Baptist. In the meantime, he had been attending Nichols Latin School, a prep school that was associated with Bates College, which is in Lewiston. Even though both Nichols and Bates were free Baptist schools, there was the usual rowdiness found on campuses, like drinking and vandalism. The other students thought that Frank was a self-righteous humbug. After Nichols, Frank attended Bates College on a general scholarship. While there, he played on the college baseball team. His position was catcher, and he served as a coach as well. During his senior year, he didn't make one error or allow a pass, and his average was 1,000. I don't know what any of that means really for baseball, but you do. Back then, catcher's mitts were little more than leather gloves. Frank's fingers were constantly getting dislocated joints, and his left hand was deformed the rest of his life. The Lewiston Journal called him Old Reliable Samford, and much later in life, the New York Times wrote that Frank was one of, if not the, greatest college catchers Maine ever saw. The Times said if Frank had, quote, stuck to professional baseball, he might have been the idol of thousands of big league fans. But Frank Sanford was not interested in being a professional baseball player. The summer between his junior and senior year at college, Frank played for a semi-pro team made up of players from Bates Bowden and Colby Colleges and the University of Maine. He was approached by scouts, but he remained in school. When he returned in the fall of 1885, he entered Cobb Divinity School at Bates College. During this time, Sanford later said, was the first time God spoke to him. Frank heard words from the Gospel of Matthew, quote, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hmm. According to some sources, Sanford dropped out of the seminary after a year. According to others, he left to become a student minister. Either way, he ended up at the Free Will Baptist Church in Topsom, Maine. He was quite the success in his three years there. He attracted 300 new members and presided over more than 100 baptisms. Frank was busy in Topsom. Besides all his church stuff, he also ran a sports program for mill workers and one for kids. By the end of his tenure in Topsom, his salary as a minister had doubled. Despite all the stuff Frank had going on, he had time to attend a lot of religious conferences. Some of the ideas he came away with were living by faith, and personal holiness. He started to think about missionary work. He started to believe in the second coming, the premillennial return of Christ, 
which didn't happen as far as I can tell, unless Jesus came back and no one noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh. everybody. I'm not trying to find. No, probably am. In 1889 or 1890, he accepted a position as a minister at the Free Baptist Church in Summerswork, New Hampshire. His salary was $1,500 a year, which was pretty good back then, especially for a minister. As with the Topsom congregation, the Summerswork Church flourished under Frank. His natural leadership and charisma attracted new followers. However, after a year or so, Frank suffered from some kind of emotional breakdown. It isn't clear what happened. The church allowed him to go on a missionary jaunt around the world. Frank went to Japan, China, India, Egypt, and Palestine. While in China, he noted at one mission he visited, quote, all depend upon God for support and divide their supplies equally, end quote. Frank kept a travel diary that was published back in Great Falls, New Hampshire. Seven volumes with the title, Around the World, Through Egypt and Over the Great Sea to Jaffa. He never got to see as much of the Holy Land as he wanted to on that trip. His ship sank off Jaffa and he almost died. He was rescued by a Muslim sailor with whom he ended up having a lifelong friendship in spite of their different beliefs. At one of the many conferences he attended, Frank made the acquaintance of Helen Kenny, originally from Ossining, New York. They connected again when he was in Japan. She was a missionary there. He proposed to her several times by mail. In one letter he wrote, quote, I believe our union will mean the marriage of the lamb and his bride. Ugh. She apparently tore the letter up, calling it blasphemous. Oh, I was going to say, what a romantic fella. But she didn't dump him, and in 1892 they married. In the meantime, Frank was getting disillusioned with his chosen religion. He had been branching out from the free Baptist beliefs and found them too narrow. In the summer of 1891, he performed an exorcism on a friend, which he deemed a success. The next day, he was walking in the woods when he heard a voice say, Armageddon. Mm. Or Armageddon it. You know that stupid song, Armageddon I don't think I've ever heard it. And then he says, are you getting it? But then he says, Armageddon it. Anyways. I had to look him up to see if he was handsome or not. But He he wasn't bad looking. It's hard to tell in those old timey photos. He definitely had something. The next year he decided. Psychopathy. It was time to go off on his own. He told Helen he wanted to give up his denominational preaching job at the church and strike out on his own, preaching his own brand of Christianity. Helen reportedly said, I think it would be lovely. Hmm. On January 1st, 1893, Frank preached his last sermon as a congregation-based Baptist minister. The theme of the sermon was go. And now I want to say Frank had this thing that you'll notice. He likes these one word things. Mm. Like, one-word messages from God and shit like that. He and Helen took off around the country preaching the Frank Sanford gospel. They traveled through New York, New Jersey, and Texas, making friends, connections, and fans along the way. They ended up back in Frank's hometown in Bodenham. His first revival meeting was July 5th, 1893. There were only seven attendees at the Lancaster Schoolhouse, but no matter... The next night in Joel Card's kitchen on Ridge Road in Bodenham, Frank made his first convert. It was haying season, so it wasn't the best time to start a new religious movement. But Frank had to follow the feeling. A few weeks after the first meeting, there were 60 people at his revival, mostly men between the ages of 20 and 60, who were so overwhelmed with the spirit while Frank preached, they'd interrupt his sermons with outbursts. (laughs) Frank didn't solicit money or pass a plate at his meetings, but people donated anyway. From September 25th to October 2nd, 1893, Frank's new movement held a convention in Summersworth, New Hampshire. 
The movement was named the World's Evangelization Crusade on Apostolic Principles. They wrote a constitution which was pretty short, and 12 men signed it. It said, Preamble, believing the speedy evangelization of the world to be the master's most important movement in hastening his coming, and further believing work undertaken with this object in view should be conducted on apostolic principles and methods set forth in the scripture. We, the undersigned, do hereby band ourselves in prayer and faith and labor to constitute an organization, and we adopt the following constitution. Article 1. The name of this organization shall be the World's Evangelization Crusade on Apostolic Principles. Article 2. The constitution and bylaws of this organization shall be the scriptures. Article 3. The head of this movement shall be the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if Jesus had anything to say about that, but... Mm. Article 4. The director of this movement shall be the Holy Ghost, who will take of the things of Christ and show them unto us. Article 5. Meetings of this movement shall be held at such a time and place as the director shall appoint, who is the Holy Ghost. If you didn't, if you missed that, he's the director. Article 6. Any person living in harmony with these principles may become a member by signing the Constitution. Article 7. This Constitution shall never be altered or amended. Mm. By the summer of 1894, the movement was celebrating its first anniversary with a July 4th convention on Centers Point, on Mary Meeting Bay. And Mary Meeting Bay isn't really a bay. It's a freshwater estuary where the Kennebec and Androscoggin rivers meet. Actually, five rivers meet there. It's called a tidal bay, but it's not right on the ocean, so... Right. Where all five rivers meet. Okay. I I know I sound like a moron. (laughs) You sound like a rain man. That's where five rivers meet. That's why it's called Mary Meeting Bay. I can still remember Sister Catherine telling us that. It's very interesting. (laughs) But it's like a lake, kind of. But I wish I was on Center's Point now because it's a nice peninsula that goes around. Beautiful, yeah. I'm going to call it the WeCap because it's a very world's evangelist crusade, blah, blah. It's too hard to say. Yeah. And actually, I don't think it comes up again, but um, they had their first convention with a bunch of testimonies and baptisms and stuff that they like, they like to do. Supporters of the Newfound Church gave tents as gifts to help the church with its missionary work traveling around the state and having revival meetings. The first tent was a gift from Fink's father-in-law, who, as I said, was a preacher himself, and was pitched in Durham on a farm owned by John Douglas that was afterwards called the Hallelujah Campgrounds. The second tent was donated two weeks later and set up in Bodenham. Soon each town between the Androscoggin and Kennebec Rivers had a revival tent preaching the Frank Sanborn Gospel, which borrowed from the Baptists, Methodists, and Pentecostals, along with Frank's own evolving theology. And if you ask me anything about these branches of Christianity, you'll be disappointed because they all seem the same to me. I know there's differences. I can't get into them. Anyone that's a member of one of those denominations. We were raised Catholic, so all, all Protestant denominations. I'll mention that later, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And my ex-husband, who is Jewish, didn't even understand that between Catholics and other Christians. He's like, you're all the same. Anyway, (laughs) you're all all stole from us anyway, is what he used to say. At the end of the first annual convention in the fall of 1894, 60 more people converted. And although it was the end of September, 
to the beginning of October, which can be a bit nippy. People were being baptized in the Androscoggin River in Lisbon Falls, near the site of the Warumbo. You tell me Warumbo Mill. Frank Sanford spoke of some of the conversions, and now I'm going to be Frank. I'm channeling Frank. Okay. A person of nearly 60 years of age who styled himself the wildest man in Maine, spent years in the Wild West, had not been inside a church for over 30 years, was soundly saved with his two sons and with his entire family, is now on the way to heaven, or as he expresses it, we're all tucked in for glory. Mm. A young man of great force who had decided to buy a tent and expose errors of preachers in gospel tents, or as he now expresses it, preach for the devil, wonderfully delivered from Satan, tobacco habit broken, profanity removed, a stack of novels burned, and with his entire being aflame with God's love, has taken charge of a gospel tent this fall. Family of five all saved and rejoicing in God. We call him Hallelujah John, and his Hallelujah is often a sermon itself. Only the dead object. Deliverance of a victim to the opium habit had used at 25 years using two and one half ounces of solid laudanum per day being crazed for weeks when attempting to cease its use with the aid of powerful antidotes went nearly wild with joy at finding herself liberated from its chains and is completely delivered for the least desire for it and now i'm back to me in 1895 there were revival tents moving around that part of maine in durham Webster, Wales, Shabig Island, Richmond, Bodenham, and Bowden. All this time, Frank had still been considering his movement a branch of the Free Baptist Church, but now he decided he was going to be independent. He didn't want to answer to a church, just to God. In Lisbon Falls in 1894, Frank started a magazine called Tongues of Fire, in which he recruited members. At first, he published it monthly, and after that, every two weeks. The title changed over the years to The Golden Trumpet, The Everlasting Gospel, The Truth, Glad Tidings of the Kingdom, and The Standard. Charles Holland was in charge of one of the tents, as was Maria Sanford Lancaster, one of Frank's sisters. All the people who were tent leaders later became the close-knit group around Frank and the leaders of the Shiloh community. October 1895, Frank started a, quote, school and gave it the name The Holy Ghost in Us Bible School. The school had no tuition, no courses, and only one teacher, Frank Sanford. The only textbook was the Bible. The classes were held at Frank. <laughs> just laughing. It's like no, yeah. Yeah. One the classes were held at Frank's sister Annie's house in Brunswick. At first, there was only one student, Willard Gleason, who was later secretary of the group. The idea for the school came from the Bible passage, Joel two nineteen. I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith. And I hmm. will no more make you reproach among the heathen. Frank apparently felt that he and his followers were living among infidels and they needed a safe place, a haven where all their needs would be taken care of. As the school moved to Richmond and then Litchfield, the number of students increased to nine pupils. By the winter of 1895, classes were being held in a farmhouse at the bottom of Beulah Hill in Durham, Maine. Frank called the classroom, quote, the room of the living waters. And why, I don't know, unless it had, like, a leak in the Well, isn't there a living waters, isn't that a Bible thing? I'm, I'm sure it is. That, the winter, it's a Protestant Bible thing, so we don't... The winter of 1895 going into 1896 was difficult for those living at Beulah Hill because of a lack of food and fuel. But converts brought food and wood. 
even as others in the area criticized and scorned them. On John Douglas's farm nearby, or Hallelujah Campground, Frank, Charles Holland, and some of the students began digging the hard dirt, which was full of gravel. God had told Frank he wanted a Bible school built. At the time, all Frank, this is the legend of it, all Frank had was three Indian head pennies and an old blue wheelbarrow. But they kept working at it, and Durham neighbors hauled away the gravel to repair roads around their farms. Frank Sanford and John Douglas fell out for unknown reasons, and according to some sources, John Douglas left and never came back. Detractors of Sanford told a story of how Sanford's cat wouldn't even chase a mouse across the boundary line into John Douglas's property. One thing I couldn't find out was if Frank Sanford was so poor, how, where did he get the land? Did he... I think Maybe he bought he it. somebody into giving it to him Or did someone church. donate it? I know, they never really say. I, one thing I read said he bought it, but they didn't give any... It was a newspaper account, and they didn't give any details, but no one else says how he got it, so I don't mm-hmm. know. Although Frank never came out and asked for money or donations, he did think it was okay to print a list of stuff the church needed in tongues of fire. And people came out in droves to help and to donate. Frank believed God would provide. He truly believed that faith in God and praying would answer any needs a person had. We will see more evidence of this belief as we go along, but just keep that in mind. The excavation continued until it was 140 feet long, 40 feet wide, and over 8 feet deep. The first bill they got was one for lumber for $19.89. Frank had no money to pay it, but lo and behold, he got a donation for $30 shortly after the lumber Mm. bill was presented, and he was able to keep going. Another of Frank's principles was, oh, no, man. The serendipitous arrival of the donation just bolstered his belief in God providing and allowing Frank to live up to his principles. Frank's plan was to lay the cornerstone of the first building on July 4th, 1896, and the stone arrived on July 3rd. At 1 o'clock in the afternoon on July 4th, 1896, he laid the cornerstone on top of a brand new Bible. The foundation was completed in August. As summer turned into fall, students, in quotes, framed the four-story building. Frank got the nails for $25 at half price, and before the bill was due, he got a donation for the exact same amount. Frank did not pay any bills until unsolicited money came. He later said, One day, a dear friend came to me and said, I have $200 you can have the use of if you wish it, as you are in special need of funds. Hmm. Thank you, brother, but the Bible says, Oh, no man, anything, end quote. Everything was finished at the last minute due to Frank not having any money and refusing money unless it came without his asking. For instance, he announced he would dedicate the chapel on October 2nd, 1896, but they didn't have any money for the flooring until the day before. A dozen men worked on the floor all day and into the night so that at four minutes past two on October 2nd, Frank could conduct the dedication service. On December, a boiler was installed. Frank, Helen, and three Shiloh students moved in that winter. By January 1897, three floors were completed. People in Durham didn't really like Frank Sanford, as well as others far and wide. They viewed the Holy Ghost and Us Society with suspicion. In 1899, a minister in Levant, Maine, was tarred and feathered. And this was the last tar and feathering in Maine. Ooh. Because he had been preaching Sanfordism. As reported in the Chattanooga Daily Times by way of the Bangor Daily News, probably, but this was the only article I found. I will read it to you. The way it was written was Mm. good. 
Shortly before midnight last night, a mob of nearly 200 called at the farmhouse of Rule Clement, about a half a mile from the village of Levant, and demanded admittance. Clement came to the door, followed by Elder George W. Higgins, leader of the Holiness Disciples, a religious sect which has stirred up excitement in this town recently. Higgins carried a lantern and shouted as he appeared, Hold up the shining light that we may see the faces of our enemies. The lantern was knocked out of his hands, and Higgins and Clement were knocked down, seized by the heels, and dragged a distance of a hundred yards toward the main road. Here, Clement was released and told to go about his business. The mob then took a rail from a fence, and placing Higgins astride it, rode him a distance of a mile and a half to the edge of the town of Glumberg. And I'm going to interrupt to say I never understood what rode out of town on a rail was, but that must be... I was just going to say the same thing. I always thought they did something on the railroad track. But maybe but they, that's what they They tie him to a rail and they pick up the rail and carry the yes. guy. Yes. Yeah, wow. Okay. Here in a little ravine, the procession halted and the clothing of the elder was quickly stripped from him. Then the mom administered a coat of tar and feathers to the preacher and ordered him to leave town at once and set him free. Higgins made his way back to the Clements' house, where Higgins and the women folk of the household had been praying and singing during his absence. Hmm. The punishment inflicted upon Higgins was the result of the indignation felt in town because the excitement which is preaching is caused it is said that the women have become practically insane from religious fervor and that in some <laughs> cases valuable property has been given up and dedicated as the disciples express it quote to the living god it is also said that the commands of elder higgins which are implicitly obeyed by his disciples have caused trouble in family relations and that one or two cases children have been tied up and beaten to drive out imaginary demons Ugh. higgins came to levan about seven years ago as a lay preacher of the methodist denomination about four years ago, he took up a new branch of religion, preaching sanctification and holiness, and introducing new rites and customs among his church people. Last March, after a visit to the Holy Ghost Temple at Shiloh in Durham, Maine, his religious teachings took a more violent form. Some followers left his church, which has gradually dwindled until only 15 of the faithful now remain. Higgins has not yet left town and says he has no intention of doing so, although he has been warned that he may expect worse treatment if he remains. Sheriff Brown of Bangor was in Levant today and secured the names of several men who are said to have been the leaders of the mob. So that just kind of gives you an idea of not only how people felt, but what the church was teaching. And we'll yeah. talk more about that later. Frank wanted to dedicate the finished Shiloh building on July 1st, 1897. But he said, as much as I believe that the devil has distinctly planned a campaign for the purpose of preventing the dedication of this building by July the 4th, as that I now exist... He has used godless editors and reporters to write up the most mm -hmm. sensational and glaringly false statements concerning this work. Statements he knew would be copied far and near, thus poisoning the minds of people all over the country against God's movement. What people didn't like was that Sanford followers were often hungry because the Sanford doctrine was to live in the supernatural. You had to be in a constant state of readiness for the Holy Spirit's latest, meaning you couldn't work a regular job job because oh. you had to be ready to do God's bidding. And well, if that you did, sounds like my kind of religion. <laughs> and if you did, God would provide you with everything you needed. Oh, you would okay. work at what needed to be done when it was needed. Although there was a schedule of sorts with praying interspersed with regular daily tasks, one had to be ready to be interrupted at any time to pray for something. The building that stands today was the first building built. 
the chapel. Frank Sanford's study was at the top of the tower, right under the cupola with the gold crown. The crown was reportedly purchased with money from the donations of wedding rings and jewelry. From the top of the turret was a 25-foot flag. It was white with the word victory printed in blue letters across it. The chapel interior was white with white pews and two large harps on either side of the stage. The day of Shiloh's dedication was July 4th, 1897. The town of Lisbon Falls, across the river from Durham, was hopped. Trains were arriving at the station with people coming for the ceremony. There was a white four-seated carriage called a gospel carriage pulled by two white horses that carried the passengers from Lisbon Falls train station to Beulah Hill, which was about a mile and a half. Tents dotted the land around the chapel at the foot of the hill for followers and looky-loos. Building of the complex, which was intended to be a school teaching Sanfordism, continued constantly through the next few years. In 1897, construction started on a granite building called Olivet, which was a place for parents studying at Shiloh to live with their young children. It was also called the Children's Building. In 1898, construction started on the hospital building called Bethesda. This was funded in part by Frank's mother-in-law, who asked in her will that her jewelry be sold and the money be used to help build a hospital. According to William Gordon, the the building was a beautifully appointed three-story brick building with a slate roof and was built on a bluff overlooking the Androscoggin. In 1899, construction on the Shiloh Extension began. This was a huge wood structure in the shape of a square, with the original chapel in the front. Its width was 500 feet, and the sides went back 600 feet. Jesus. It had a fort-like appearance, four sides with an enclosed yard, and it was three stories tall. There were two tall square turrets on the front that flew the English and American flags because one of Stanford's beliefs, which I'll talk about later, was that Anglo-American people were two of the lost tribes of Israel. Mm. And we'll have more on that later. They named the two front towers, Manassas and Ephraim. There were supposedly two other towers, but it's hard to tell from the photographs. I I only see one big one in the back. They were called Jerusalem and David. On either side of the Shiloh Chapel were 40-foot-tall peace gates that had pictures of angels blowing trumpets painted on them. A lot of the money to build the extension came from donations from groups in different towns and cities in New England. So sections of the extension had names like the Boston section, the Springfield section, or the Manchester section. Mm. Students also provided money because when people joined the group, they had to give all their money to the community. They could not own any possessions of their own. And they couldn't even own like postage stamps. If their family sent them postage stamps to send them letters, they were taken away from them. They couldn't own anything. The society was buying up property like it was going out of style and not just in Maine. They Or people donated property to them. They had property on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, a school in Tacoma, Washington, a school in Rio de Janeiro, property in Jerusalem and 25 farms in Durham, Maine, among other acquisitions. By the end of the 19th century, the society owned over 1,500 acres of tax-free land in Durham. Shiloh was a live-in school that's purpose was to prepare evangelical missionaries. The students didn't take formal classes, though they learned through work, which is how it got built so fast. The school was so popular, probably because they only charged $1 per week tuition. Frank had to write in his magazine warning people not to just show up because they may be turned away. A lot of people claimed to be students who had not been formally admitted. While it started out as a school for unmarried adults, by 1904 it was a a full-service school for all grades with kindergarten, primary, grammar, and high school. Frank changed the name to the University of Truth. His plan was to have a full-blown university... But that never came to pass because of the other crap that happened, which we will soon see. Okay, yeah, I'm... 
Lack of food was a constant issue at Shiloh. Most of the time, the food was cornmeal mush and beans, or sometimes in summer, cucumbers. While they tried to have a shoe factory, a dairy, and a greenhouse on site, none of these ended up being successful, in large part due to the Sanfordite philosophy of, quote, never mind the morrow. In other words, live for the moment, don't plan. <laughs> and also, don't work regularly because you might have to drop what you're doing and pray at any given moment. For instance, maybe a crop had to be harvested but Frank decided everyone needed to pray about something and the crop would go bad sitting in the field. Stuff like that happened all the time. It doesn't sound like a sustainable model. You know, a lot of this reminds me, I'll talk about it more later, Jonestown. Yeah. That were people not getting food and stuff. People came from all over the place to study at Shiloh, but in particular they came from Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, New York, and Texas, where he had traveled and like set up little groups there. People who joined the community were expected to give all their possessions to the University of the Truth, as I said. But a lot of them got sick of the stressful way of life and went back to their hometowns. Uh, Many of them were totally broke and had to borrow money just to get back home. In 1899, the Reverend C.S. Weiss of Chicago came to study at Shiloh for a few weeks. After his stay at the community, he wrote an expose with the Lisbon Falls Enterprise that was published. It wasn't published in the paper. It was published as like one of those track, you know, little tracks that they used to sell. The title was Sanford Exposed, A Warning and Protest. In the article, C.S. described his religious credentials. He'd started, quote, seeking the Lord at age 12. And at age 14, he was, quote, converted to the Holy Spirit. He told of his years of Bible study and work as a preacher, all to illustrate his credentials. He wrote, quote, I have not written to injure Sanford, but to save the poor, ignorant, narrow-minded class who have little or no capacity for doing their own thinking, and nothing provokes me more that when the strong and educated take advantage of the weak and ignorant to their injury and sorrow. And this is a case when leniency and forbearance cease to be virtues. I would rather speak good than evil of Mr. Sanford, but when this cannot be done in sincerity, I will speak the truth and shame the devil, even if I must pick up and sue the same lash of his, which he is such an adept at using on the helpless and innocent who do not conform to his notions. When I first came, I was favorably impressed, as others are, under the magnetism of F.W. Sanford, who is its president, secretary, treasurer, and board of directors. But I soon saw that there was little reliance to be placed on his contradictory but pretended revelation. C.S. wrote that Sanford would say, for instance, that a building would be finished by a certain date, and when the residents of Shiloh would work day and night to complete it, but if for some reason it looked like his prediction was not going to come through, suddenly he'd get another message from God with a different date. C.S. said after a few weeks at (laughs) Shiloh, he started showing his skepticism. He said, finally, I was examined and called to the private office of the owner of the plantation. He worked on the, like, farm part. Right. And informed gently that they could survive my absence. I felt very sorry for this, but I was very glad to get away, for my eyes and heart for days before this had been pained by the deceptions, inconsistencies, and injustice I had seen and heard until I was in doubt whether God or the devil had most to do with this the enterprise where integrity and charity seemed so scarce and self-righteousness was so common. Once people read the expose, those with loved ones and relatives at Shiloh felt their worst fears were realized. They tried to get their family members out of Shiloh or tried to get them declared insane, especially the many who had signed over their land deeds to the society. The town of Durham was also getting worried. 
They did collect taxes on the property Shiloh owned that was used residentially, but they worried about block voting of Shiloh residents or that they could take over the school board or the board of selectmen. This isn't an unheard of fear if you remember the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his followers, how they took over Antelope, Oregon in the 1980s. It could have happened, but it didn't. They were like one third of the population around the turn of the century, the people, the Shilohites. In May of 1905, there was a full page spread about Shiloh and its detrimental effect on the town of Durham. It was on the front page of a Sunday paper insert magazine story that was in a lot of major city newspapers. The Inner Ocean in Chicago, for instance. And there were some other ones. I found the same story with the same layout and a bunch when I was on newspaper. The story gave some background on Frank Sanford and warned that the Sanfordites were taking over local political posts. Frank Sanford had been making national headlines for years, and he and Shiloh would continue to make the news. The town was also worried about people living in hunger and poverty and how that would affect the town if Shiloh went under and the town had to take care of hundreds of people. Uh At that time, Durham only had about 1,200 residents besides Shilohites, who numbered at times over 500 in the late 1800s. In any case... There was also conflict about the belief system within Sanfordism and what the hierarchy was. In 1900, Sanford cleared it up for his followers. This was the order of authority. God had told him this, obviously. God tells him everything. God the Father was the top, then God the Son, a prophet chosen by God, who was naturally Sanford, Yeah. <laughs> ordained ministers, Everyone else was under the ministers, with, of course, wives and children answering to their husbands and fathers. Frank Sanford, like Jim Jones after him, started to think that he was not only an agent of God, but that he was actually acting as God, and as such, he demanded total obedience. Then Sanford started a program not unlike the methods of Scientology after him. As Shirley Nelson wrote, Sanford began a program that, quote, incorporated not just confession, but long day and night sessions of open and unrelenting criticism of each other. One's capacity to accept that scouring in a contrite and cooperative spirit without resentment and defensiveness was the first step in passing the grade, end quote. Then each person was brought before Frank. So he could look at them with the, quote, seven eyes of God. People who passed got tickets that read, The bearer looketh forth from the upper room, fair, clear, terrible. The difference between the Sanford method and and Scientology was that Frank was trying to purge people, and Scientology uses the same methods to coerce people into staying. As I explained before, Sanfordism didn't run on a strict schedule, with a few exceptions. They did celebrate Jewish Holy Days, and their Sabbath was on Saturday. Also, since Frank believed that Jesus died on a Thursday, every Thursday they had to pray from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Frank was always traveling around making new converts and allies around the world. When he was finally able to visit Palestine for the first time in 1898, he decided that God wanted him to found a community of Sanfordites there. That's when he wrote about how the Ten Lost tribes of Israel were American and England. The descendants had been brought to the British Isles by Assyrians, and those people migrated to America. It was a convenient theory because it made Anglo-Saxons the chosen people of the Bible and therefore superior, which they thought they were anyway. Frank had always been interested in faith healing, and his interest and belief in it increased as the years went by. By the time the, quote, hospital was built at Shiloh, Frank's belief was that prayer would heal the sick. He believed any sickness that couldn't be cured by the laying on of hands was due to God's discipline of a sinner or demons inside a person. He called the practice prevailing prayer and all the converts would pray at once causing an unholy din 
Pun intended. Mm. <laughs> the doctors at the hospital were there to consult or diagnose, but there were no treatments or medicines administered. But I'm assuming it was similar to like an infirmary where they must have had beds and stuff, but I guess they didn't do any treatments. In 1901, Frank reorganized the church and announced there would now be tiered memberships. The people who lived full-time and devoted their whole lives to Shiloh were a hundredfold warriors. There were others who lived off the site but still devoted time and resources to the movement. They were 60-fold and 30-fold warriors. With this new organization, Frank said the church was starting anew and independent, and he rebaptized all the members in the Androscoggin River. Hmm. And I also read somewhere that he liked to do baptisms on January 1st in the Androscoggin and the Kennebec Rivers, which I'm sure was a lot and of And both, both of those rivers were not very clean at that time. And also, I was going to say they were froze, but maybe they weren't if they were dirty. They'd have to break a hole. But also, their baptisms aren't just like in the Catholic Church where we dribble some water on your head. You know, they you dunk you, man. Yeah, dunk. This is also when Frank announced that God had spoken to him and said, Elijah is here, Ooh. indicating that he, Frank, was the reincarnation of the prophet Elijah. In Revelations, and please people, I'm so oversimplifying this. In the <laughs> Revelations, Elijah is one of two witnesses who will be martyred and come back to life before the second coming of Christ. And to any of our listeners, like I said, who are true believers, I apologize if I'm butchering the scripture. That's the way I understand it. Us Catholics stuck to the New Testament. His longtime right hand, Charles Holland, was, was Moses reincarnated, according to what God told Frank. Moses was another prophet who was going to come back prior to the second coming. My simplistic explanation of who Elijah was and Moses was similar. A Hebrew prophet who preached about the one God. And preached against idolatry, just like Moses. Both of them did. The Elijah <laughs> pronouncement got a lot of negative press and also pissed off any supporters from other Christian communities enough so they no longer supported the Holy Ghost in us society. In 1902, after another trip to Jerusalem, God told Frank that he was also King David from the Bible. After that announcement, Frank changed the name of the movement to the kingdom. He had a portrait made with the words, David careth for the sheep printed on it, a you know, portrait of him. Right. Frank had the kingdom officially incorporated by the state of Maine. The owner was God, and <laughs> Frank was head trustee. He also incorporated with God as owner, and Frank as head trustee, the Kingdom Yacht Club, which was located in South Freeport. Which we talked about. When yeah, we, we did. And our correction. He had at least one boat by this time, which would sail up and down the main coast, stopping in fishing villages and at lighthouses, preaching Sanfordism. One town the boat visited a lot was Jonesport, but there were already a lot of Mormons living there, and they weren't really interested. After his 1902 trip to Jerusalem, Frank found on his return to Shiloh morale low and many of the residents physically ill. He concluded the problem was demons and a lack of spirituality. Of course, it couldn't possibly be malnutrition and lack of medical care and overwork. No. Uh, his solution was to tell his followers to scrutinize their fellow Sanfordites for sin. Also, Frank told parents to whip their children on a regular basis to keep them demon-free. And I wonder, remember I worked with that woman that was a former cult member? And some of the stories I read, there are some cults that are branched out from this, and I can't remember if hers, what hers was called, but that was one of their things, was you had to regularly whip your children. Jesus. 
I know. In January of 1903, Frank decreed there would be what he called a Nineveh fast, in which no one was allowed food or liquid for 36 hours. No one, including babies, animals, and sick people. It was during this fast that Leander Bartlett died of diphtheria. Sanford's seven-year-old son, John, had disobeyed him around the same time. He was made to fast without food or water until he agreed he would gladly be whipped in order to atone for his digressions. Here's an excerpt from a column about Frank Sanford written by George Hoyt, David Palance, and Jonathan Cohn and published in the Cabinet Press. The New York Times reported, illness is a sign that the soul was sick, and if children were ill, it was due not to malnutrition, but to their sinful state. Sick children were told to get right with God by fasting and praying on their knees for extended periods of time. In some way, their sins were causing Shiloh to suffer. Since the children were wayward and disobedient, fasting and being whipped were the ways in which they were punished. The beatings continued day and night. One father beat his young son all evening until someone stopped him at 1 a.m. There were rumors of older boys being taken out to the woods and beaten with horse whips. One mother heard Sanford say that whipping a child was the schoolmaster to bring him to Christ. Hmm. The leaders encouraged people, even children, to reveal each other's faults. In a world with few material possessions, the most minor flaws became the source of guilt and self-loathing. A young girl confessed to the sin of vanity because she looked in a mirror. Then she was told to fast for three days to atone for her sin. It became a community obsession to root out the most minute bit of evil in their lives with a ruthlessness usually reserved for members of restricted monastic orders. Quote, it mattered how you acted, how you talked, and even how you thought and Frank Sapford even made an example of his own son, John. When John was seven years old, he disobeyed his father. John learned the penalty for disobedience, as did the entire community through his example. Sanford declared that John should be isolated in a room, denied food and water, and then he would be whipped. There was a twist to the whipping John had to earnestly desire to be beaten. For three days, John was in a room, a glass of water torturously placed out of reach on the nightstand, learning to be happy about suffering. Each day, he would climb the staircase to his father's prayer room and ask for his whipping, but Frank did not find him happy enough until the third day, end quote. Nathan Harriman, who defected from Shiloh, told authorities about what happened to John Sanford. On January 1904, Frank W. Sanford was indicted in Androscoggin for manslaughter for the death of Leander Bartlett and cruelty to children for what he had done to his own son, John. In 1904, Frank was convicted on the child cruelty charge, but there was a hung jury on the manslaughter charge. He was retried and convicted on both charges. But in 1905, the... Supreme Judicial Court of Maine reversed the manslaughter conviction because the trial judge had told jurors to make their decision based on whether or not they felt someone could be cured by the power of prayer. A third trial resulted in a hung jury. Frank had his followers sign a 10-foot-long scroll pledging their loyalty. There were 507 signatures. One of the things they signed was, quote, F.W. Sanford of Shiloh, Maine, USA, was both Elijah and King David, and, quote, I believe and accept him as such. While the manslaughter case was working its way through the main court system, Frank bought a racing yacht called the Wanderer for $10,000, which would be almost $300,000 today. He renamed it the Coronet. The Wanderer was 128 feet long and was built for Pierre Lorillard, a tobacco millionaire, for $55,000. So it was a pretty fancy schmancy boat. Anyway, they raised the money through prayer. 40 days, 24 hours per day, taking shifts. 
1905 and 1906, during his court battles, Frank used the boat to make two trips to Jerusalem. I know nothing about sailing, so I have no idea how long such a trip would take, but I looked it up, and if he went through the Strait of Gibraltar, it would have taken about three weeks one way. Something I read said he made two quick trips to Jerusalem, and I'm like, how can he make two quick trips to Jerusalem in two years? But I guess he could do it if the weather's good. William Gordon has a quote from the captain of the Coronet, but I found it very frustrating. (laughs) His dissertation, as helpful as it was, the top and the bottom of each page, because it was like a scanned page, are cut off, so Mm. I can't read the footnotes. I'm assuming this is something that was printed in one of Sanford's publications, but it could have been printed in a regular newspaper, but I doubt it. You'll see when I read it why I doubt its provenance. Here's somewhat the captain, who is unfortunately not named or conveniently said. I'm no Sanfordite, and I don't know as I'm much of a Christian when it comes to going to church, but I like to treat a man as I find him, and I must say, skeptic as I am, that I found Sanford to be a perfect gentleman, a kind and loving father, and a man who would take his shirt off for a fellow if he thought he needed it. Mm. How do you account for this uprising against Sanford, then? Well, I'll tell you, I think it, it is all to do with what I call lazy Christians. Sanford is a worker. He doesn't spare himself. He works early and late wherever he is. These lazy Christians went to Shiloh, put in a couple hundred dollars perhaps, and expected to live the rest of their days in ease. When they found that something was expected of them, they kicked. They don't like to work. They're lazy. Then they demanded their money back, saying they had been swindled and threatened all sorts of things. Do you think Sanford has any hypnotic influence which he exercises over these people that has been rumored? Pshaw, don't you believe it? If he had any hypnotic influence, he might have hypnotized me out of the monthly salary he paid me and what few cents I had besides. I never heard him speak an ill word of anybody. He don't even defend himself. He tries to live, as I understand it, as near like Christ as he can, and all the rest of them do. That's why they don't have any doctors. I see they say he called a doctor to consult about his son's fasting. That isn't so, for there are no doctors at Shiloh. They believe that disease is an affliction produced by sin in some form, and that it can be healed by prayer, and I've seen some strange cures on that schooner. Then this unnamed captain goes on in great detail about what the days were like on the coronet as it went up and down the coast of Maine, and how great everyone's was. Hmm. their lives were. I find the providence and authorship of this piece to be very suspicious. The student who wrote this thesis seemed quite gullible that William Gordon in a lot of ways um, but he he had some interesting information. Like one of the things he said was he called Sanford well-meaning but misguided which I'm hmm. like yeah okay William Gordon. But like I don't think any, that any captain really wrote that. I think Sanford No, that Frank had lots of plans for carrying out his worldwide mission. He dreamed of acquiring a thousand ton ocean line or a blimp to get around the world with all his missionaries. Again, kind of like Scientology. Mm -hmm. He never reached those goals, but he did end up with five boats. Frank had traveled a lot in the 10 years or so of his mission. In one year, he reportedly traveled 31,000 miles in his constant journey around the globe proselytizing. He bought a house in Jerusalem because he was there so often. Frank believed that he and his buddy Charles Holland, a.k.a. Moses, were going to be stoned to death on the streets of Jerusalem in preparation of the second coming of Christ, then they'd be resurrected, etc., etc. Frank named his third boat the Kingdom. It was a steel clipper ship with four masts, also called a barkentine, which I think means it's more of like a square shape than a like a long 
shape. Right, yeah. I don't know anything about books. Yeah, me neither. Something and I, I don't want nothing. it. According to William Gordon's thesis, the kingdom was a gospel vessel sailing in the China waters and the seas around the East and West Indies. The captain was Leonard C. Dart, and he had a crew made up from men of men from China, Japan, Sweden, Germany, Denmark, Norway, England, Ireland, America, and one cannibal from the South Sea <laughs> Islands who had previously helped eat a medical missionary. The crew under Dart was not allowed to drink, smoke, gamble, or swear, end quote. The kingdom traveled all over the place, leaving copies of Frank's tract, My Seven Years with God, as it went, until it wrecked and burned in 1911 off the east coast of Africa, which I will tell you more details of that later. The coronet made a trip around the world from 1907 to 1909, holding classes on board and preaching at every major port. On this journey, Frank brought a harp, so he could take lessons. He ended up trading that harp for a new one in Australia, a gold-plated harp that cost $1,000 or about $30,000 nowadays. Also on this trip, Frank found out that Florence Whitaker, who lived in his Jerusalem community, wanted to come back to the United States with or without her husband. Frank decided he was going to bring everyone back from Palestine, and Florence agreed to board the kingdom for the trip home. Everything seemed fine until the schooner reached the coast of Maine. Then Frank refused to let Florence disembark until she quote adjusted to her husband it Hmm. took a court order for her to be allowed to leave the boat in may 1910 the coronet set off from wolf's neck in south freeport with crew and passengers numbering 36 and the kingdom left at the same time carrying 30 men women and children as in the usual sanfordite fashion provisions weren't great either god was going to provide or they were never minding the morrow i'm not sure which but for whatever reason the boats were not appointed with enough food water or medical supplies for a long trip and also frank sanford hadn't decided on where they were going yet first they sailed down to cape hatteras north carolina then frank got word about a lawsuit filed by florence whitaker he heard authorities were staking out every port to serve him papers. Their journey was chronicled along the way by the newspapers. One example, the Ottawa Evening Journal had a headline July 30th, 1910, Holy Ghosts at Sea, No Place on Earth. <laughs> Reverend Frank Sampert is being worshipped as Elijah II. Fifteen years ago was a college baseball player with considerable fame and vicinity. And the article it says, now they are all wondering where they can land to live unmolested by prosaic things like laws. (laughs) So Frank decided they should sail up to Bell Island on the east coast of Newfoundland. He felt that maybe it would be a good idea to start a mission in Greenland. Finally, God told Frank that they should go to Africa. This was in December of 1910. And they got to the northwest coast of Africa in February of 1911. Anywhere they tried to land, they got stoned by residents or were unwelcomed. He wanted to, like, convert the savages, he said. Mm-hmm. So Sanford decided they just subdue the world for Christ, in his words, by praying from the yacht, then sounding brass horns to claim the different islands and countries for Christ from out in the water. But they couldn't go to shore to get any provisions. On April 1911, while sailing around Cape Juby, which is up on the northwestern coast of Africa, the kingdom grounded on the reefs and could not be removed. Frank said it was because they weren't praying enough and they were lacking spiritually. Everyone from that vessel boarded the coronet, which made it overloaded with people. They sailed south for a few days but returned to the kingdom, the boat, the kingdom, where Frank decided to burn it as an offering to God for the salvation of Africa. Because of the unfriendly reception on shore, no one was getting provisions for the journey, as I said. The people on board were subsisting on very little food and water, although there were reports of Sanford and his wife having plenty to eat cooked by a private cook. 
The coronet sailed across the Atlantic to the south coast of South America and up the coast. In San Salvador, the coronet was ordered out of territorial waters for not having the correct sailing documents. Frank was arrested in Haiti under suspicion that he was providing arms to revolutionaries. He was released after signing an agreement to leave the area and not come back. Shortly after the coronet left the territorial waters of Haiti, a two-year-old girl died on board and was buried at sea. From July to October 1911, the coronet made its way north following the eastern seaboard of North America, but Frank would not stop the ship for supplies. Two men were finally given permission to go ashore for supplies on a rowboat, but they never came back. Frank said God had told him he could not dock the boat anywhere in the United States or Canada. Actually, Apparently, God said that they could not <laughs> enter the port of any place where they had already prayed. So, effectively, that was the U.S. and Canada. Jesus. The boat by this time was worm-eaten by tropical borers and had suffered through a bad storm and was leaking badly. The people on board were eating half a cracker a day and drinking rainwater. Ugh. There was, they were, like, pumping constantly to get pumping the water out. But Frank said he got a message from God that said, Continue. So he ordered the ship north towards Greenland. His wife even begged him to turn back towards May, but he told her he would take the coronet to the gates of hell if God willed it, and she should mind her own business. But something happened off the Grand Banks of Labrador. No one would say exactly what it was, but it was like pretty much almost a mutiny happened. Uh, and the boat turned back towards Maine. By this time, things were desperate. The coronet was begging for food from passing ships, but only the British steamer Lapland responded to their distress signals. They gave the coronet some food, but no fruit or vegetables. Uh-oh. They also wired other ships in the area that they had helped out the coronet and it was no longer in distress. So the other ships just ignored any signals from them after that. Jesus. On October 21st, 1911, the listing, almost wrecked coronet limped into Portland Harbor. The boat was covered in barnacles, its sails shredded, and it was boarded immediately by the authorities, and a, the yellow quarantine flag was raised. The passengers were emaciated and barely able to stand. Five men had died of scurvy, and one more died shortly after arriving. They had sailed about 15,000 miles. Frank was first arrested on the charges brought by Florence Whitaker. A few days later, he was arrested on manslaughter charges and that he, quote, unlawfully, knowingly, and willingly allowed a vessel to proceed on a voyage at sea without sufficient provisions. Frank went to trial in December 1911. He represented himself, of course. Of course. As is always the case. Frank was provided legal advice, which he ignored. Frank's defense was that the illness and starvation wasn't his fault. They were punishments from God because the Crew refused his orders to go to Greenland. It only took a jury an hour to convict Frank of manslaughter, but it was only one count. He was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia. According to William Gordon, quote, he conducted himself ably in the trial and showed no hatred towards the court or the onlookers and managed to sway a great deal of popular sentiment to his side. When the time came to leave for Atlanta, Frank was given permission to walk down Congress Street to the Union Station in Portland, and I think they mean from the jail, which is up at the top of Congress Street, which is probably a little more than a mile. With two convicts who had robbed a post office in Burnham, Maine, they were all going to to Atlanta together. Frank wore his Commodore uniform. (laughs) There was a crowd of 6,000 at the train station to see Frank off. While in prison, Frank made the most of it. He organized baseball teams, helped prisoners learn to read and write, encouraged the better educated prisoners to help out their fellow inmates. His classes were quite popular. Here's a supposed quote from a letter an inmate wrote. I say suppose it because it's from a book Frank Sanford wrote after Hmm. he got out of prison. I wouldn't believe any of that. 
Before I was sent to prison, I went with bad company until I was so far gone in sin that I gave no thought to my soul's salvation. After coming here, the USP, I was lonesome. I could not see a friendly face until one day in the dining room I was attracted by a man's face across the aisle. That face was lit up in all smiles. Not knowing the man, I began to ask who he was. I was told, that is Mr. Sanford, and he has a class in school and also one in Sunday school. The first Sunday I attended, he told us of the love Jesus has for us, and my heart began to hunger for this salvation. I resolved to give my heart to God and did so. Before I did this, every word I said was a curse. But praise the Lord, he took the cursing out of me and gave me joy, joy in my soul. Frank called mm -hmm. prison the University of Iron. At first, he had a hard time with regulations of prison life, but his health actually improved while there with proper food, rest, and exercise. He even told the residents of Shiloh that they were to stop whatever they were doing at 11.30 a.m. and 4 p.m. to join him in exercises. He was allowed to receive his harp in prison and gave a couple of concerts there. Hmm. Frank's letters from prison were reprinted and distributed to the members of Shiloh, even Frank's private letters were published. Because he was only allowed to send out two letters per month, a resident of Shiloh actually moved to Atlanta and would visit Frank every week and take dictation so Frank's words could be relayed back to his followers. Frank was released from prison after serving seven years of his sentence because of good behavior, of course. When he got back to Shiloh, he was served a feast, though at the time the Sanfordites had been suffering from the usual hunger and illness. Frank's return led to new donations and people were able to at least have enough food for two meals a day for a while. While Frank was in prison, he tried to have his son John, the one he whipped and starved, made leader of Shiloh. But John was only a teenager still and wasn't suited for the job. Then Frank instituted a program called the Eye of the Needle, which was designed to examine the Shilohite souls and made John the head of that. That did not go over well. One can only imagine what a boy of his age would do with that kind of power because they were supposed to like the same thing where they were like examining their right. sins and all that shit. Frank put a halt to it when it was obvious that John was not well liked. Also about this time, one of Frank's daughters, Marguerite, ran away. This didn't reflect well on Frank, who always said the group leaders had to have control over their children. Another daughter ran away a few days after Frank returned from prison. Frank himself moved to the kingdom's Boston headquarters a few months later. While Frank had been in prison, the kingdom had done nothing in the way of evangelism or tried to convert people. It was like without him there, they didn't know what to do. In February 1920, Emma Hastings, a Shiloh resident, died. Her relatives filed suit to gain custody of her children away from their father, William, who was still living in Shiloh. Here's a quote from the book, Churches That Abused by Ronald M. Enroth. Quote, On the stand, the Hastings children recounted the poverty they had experienced. Ten-year-old David said he couldn't ever remember having had breakfast before school, although he did have lard on his bread as a Christmas present. Mm. His older sister Mary recounted how, because she was too malnourished, she was hidden in in the woods when child welfare inspectors came. Neighbors testified to feeding starving children. In his testimony, William admitted that they did not have enough to eat, but he refused to work for wages as it was against God's law. He was living on faith even if his children starved, indeed, as they had most of their lives. Hastings lost the battle and his children were taken from him. The Ch Children's Protective Agency of Maine investigated the conditions at the community and said that all minor children should be removed. Also in February 1920, the Bangor Daily News had a story about a son who was trying to get his parents out of Shiloh. 
Ralph Payne from Kansas City said he got a scribbled note, and I think he used to be a member of Shiloh, too. It was hard to read it because it was um, the newspaper that I was reading was very... I was on newspapers.com. It was hard to read. But he was trying to get his parents out of Shiloh. He got a scribbled note that was stuck inside a regular letter as if they were being snuck out so censors couldn't read it. Dear Ralph, if you truly love us as you should, you would see to it that we had a little money occasionally. I could get broken cookies and crackers by the bag at the falls, which they mean Lisbon Falls. They only cost three cents a pound. They would help us out so much when food is scarce. God's will be done. Please burn this note and say nothing about it, Father. Luckily, his time there would soon come to an end. In March 1920, Frank received a message from God that he relayed to his followers and said, work. (laughs) So people did. The people in the shallow community went off to find jobs. In two months, prayer vigils were a thing of the past. The Bible school closed. The male residents got jobs at nearby mills in Brunswick, Lewiston, and Thompson and never looked back. They realized they could actually work get paid and eat instead of praying for food all the time that didn't always come. The population of Shiloh was almost 400 when Frank returned from prison. By May of 1920, there were only a few residents left. The Washington Herald had a small item on June 14, 1920, headlined, Shiloh Community, Holy Ghost and Us Society Broken Up. From all indications, the Bible class of the Holy Ghost and Us Society held its last meeting recently on the Shiloh Hilltop near Durham, Maine, and the class was broken up, never to be reformed. About 30 of the 600 who formerly belonged to the class attended the final meeting. The Reverend Willard Gleason has gone to work in a garage in Boston. The Reverend John Sanford, son of the founder of the society, is employed in the dye house of the Woolen Mills at Lisbon Falls. The state has been asked to take charge of the two patients at the Shiloh Hospital and has announced as soon as these patients leave the hospital is to be closed, never to be reopened. Indications point to the complete breaking up of the Shiloh colony. Around the same time God told Frank to tell his followers to work, he told Frank to retire. Mm. So Frank retired to the Catskill Mountains near Hobart, New York, according to William Hiss. William Gordon said Frank retired to Miami, but Hiss seems to have better sources, so I'm going with New York. Frank still had followers. There were different small groups around the country, and he lived off donations and tithes from his followers. God still told him stuff to tell his followers, and he still said he was Elijah and King David. On New Year's Eve, 1941, God told him to remit the sins of each and every person that has been baptized since October 1st, 1901. His wife, Helen, had died that year and was buried in the Shiloh Cemetery, which I don't know is still there. There is a cemetery right near it, but I don't know if that's... um, It must be because they don't normally, like, remove a cemetery. That's true. When Frank died in 1948, those close to him did not release the news of his death for six weeks. The location of his grave was not disclosed. Some of his followers thought his body went to heaven like Jesus's did when he was resurrected. Mm-hmm. Like we were just saying. like he. W- the kingdom continued, but not in the way it had done with Frank around. There are still some small sects around, and in 1998 it was reorganized and called the Kingdom Christian Mis- Ministries. In 1946, Shiloh made the news briefly when two men were killed during a duel-like shootout. The story is very confusing, but apparently this guy, Irene Laprise, and yes, his name was Irene. Maybe that was one of the reasons he was a jerk. <laughs> right, like a boy from, named Sue. From Brunswick, I know, showed up at Shiloh saying he wanted to buy the property. Then he gave a letter to the caretaker, Philip Holland, whom I'm assuming is related to George Holland, a.k.a. Moses, demanding money. 
He held several people at gunpoint for two hours. Then Dr. Charles Reeder of Durham, who had somehow been alerted about the trouble, showed up with his own gun. The two shot at each other and both died. Two others, a Mrs. Godfrey, age 71, and Carl Webster, age 32, were wounded. Phil Holland and the other guy, Bernard Anderson, were injured. In 1952, the expansion and all the other buildings except the chapel were demolished, which is kind of sad. As one of the articles I read that was written in the 1920s, someone said it would someday be a hotel, but unfortunately it wasn't. It was in very poor repair due to neglect by then. Shiloh Chapel is used as a church still, but has no connection with the former movement or the new one. That is the end of my show. I hope you found it interesting. I did, because I didn't know, like, I knew about Shiloh Chapel. I remember once trying to figure out, like, there was some event going on there trying to figure out exactly so what is this place but it seems to be a non-denominational christian church now i'd like to go to see what it's like inside yeah i didn't realize that he had been on trial twice yeah all of that i mean i knew there was a weird kind of sect but like i said there have been there's so many religious communities and and they're probably all over the country Oh, no, that was interesting. I liked that. Yeah. Thank you. Because I drive around in those areas. Like, lots of times, if I'm coming back from Portland and I don't feel like just taking 295, I'll, um, you know, I'll go on 9 through, like, Pownall. I used to actually like to take a right onto 125 and drive through Lisbon Falls. Shiloh Road is a little out of the way. I mean, you can go down it, but you have to turn around and come back if you're going. But it is an interesting, like... Like, when I first saw it, I was like, wow, I never knew this was here. I know there are reasons for it, but always confounds me how people will just slavishly follow one crazy man to their own detriment. I know. I mean, it... He's but not it did, a lot of it did. Re- it reminded me a lot of Jonestown because although he didn't, there isn't any indication of him being having sexual. Although, uh, like a lot of the other, I stuff. was gonna say when you talked about his daughter running away and then the other one ran away two days after he came home from jail, it makes you kind of wonder. That's true. You know, even if nobody's written about it, it sounds like that doesn't mean there wasn't some kind of sexual abuse going on. There were so many other kinds of abuse. I know. I'm just totally guessing, but... It's funny how a lot of them have so many things in common, though. I know, and yet people still They will... need something. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> So do you have a... A recommendation? Yes. I do. I was going to do Alan versus Pharaoh, which is very good and I highly recommend it. I would have had to watch it again and I just couldn't. I just... I will say people who have preconceived notions about what went on need to watch. It's a really good documentary. It's funny, I was listening to our friends on Real Crime Profiles who did an episode about another podcast that my guesses was bankrolled by Woody Allen, just talking all this shit about the documentary, and they obviously huh. must not have watched it because the documentary set straight a lot of the... Ooh. But uh, I mean, is, I'll watch it when okay, I'm in the mood. Right, but that is not what I'm doing. Okay. My NNW is on something I watched on Netflix this week. Ooh. Harlan Coben's The Stranger. Ah. 
I guess so people won't think it's like Camus the Stranger <laughs> or something, right? I've always been a fan of Harlan Coben. I go every year, and Becky, you have the past several years too, except for last year with the pandemic, to the New England Crime Bake, which is a, a mystery writers conference. And the first year I went in 2007, Harlan Coben, or 2008, I can't remember now, Harlan Coben was the guest speaker. I find his books good. I I like the way, good day. He has empathy for people. I feel like that's really important in books and characters. In the films I've seen of his books, I've only seen a couple, that comes through. And he also, when I was at that crime bake, talked about how Hollywood wanted to completely change, like, the first book he had made into a movie, but a production company in France wanted to be true to the book, and he had a lot of input, and now a lot of his books are made into films. Oh, yes, that one was Tell No One, I think. Right, right. His books tend to be made into films in places that aren't America, because other places have respect, more respect for the written story than our kind of, you know, glitzy, grind it up, spit it out. It's um, always, yeah, they're, and they're always so, yeah. they, they always have to have the same cliches. And they have to y- change it. Yes. Mm-hmm. This one was made in Britain, and I had a little fun watching it, trying to picture how it would be if it were made in, like, New Jersey or wherever it would have taken place in America. And I'm going to have to read the book. The plot is very twisty and turny, but in a good way. It starts out, there's, like, this typical family, and they're at the soccer the kids are playing soccer. The wife is away at a teacher's conference. He has a son, like a very young teen, and then an older teen. The kids are maybe 12 or 13 and 15 or 16. They're having a meeting, like a parents' meeting or something at the soccer club, or football, as they call it in yes. this film. A woman, a mysterious woman, comes up to Adam, the protagonist, and tells him that his wife, who had been pregnant, a few years ago, had faked the pregnancy. She gives him some website to check, and he's like, like, what? Uh, who are you? How do you know this? Uh, and things spiral Ew. from there. And I won't, and I'm going to try to avoid spoilers. I know okay. we didn't do that with Mare. It's just too complicated to blurt out one okay. thing. But one thing I will say is that, and I did like Mare of Easttown, despite our reading <laughs> of it, that this is an example of how a story can be told without using tropes and cliches. There were a couple things I texted you that I knew something was going to happen. And sometimes, I mean, you can't help it. You just know shit is going to happen. And I'm not one of those people that really tries to figure out plots, even the ones I write myself. (laughs) But but in any case, let me get into it. Bad reenactments, you would think for a fiction movie miniseries, and it had eight episodes, this wouldn't be an issue. But interestingly... There were a couple little, I wouldn't call them reenactments, but mini flashbacks where somebody referred to something and they give you a little mini flashback, like the person is remembering it from like three episodes before. So you'll be, oh, right, okay, that's how he knows that. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was very effective. I'm not taking away points, but I thought I'd... Narrative cliches. There may have been some, 
But there weren't any glaring ones. I thought the narrative that the characters and everybody were not people you see in every single thing. You know, and as I tried to put it in America, an obvious well-to-do suburban, everybody's comfortable except for the Stephen Ray. Stephen Ray is in it and Ooh. his character. His character is the last holdout in uh, in a bunch of old little, in Britain they call them like terrorists houses mm-hmm. or whatever that somebody wants to tear down to put up a big complex and he won't leave. He's a retired cop. Despite the fact that it's it's a neighborhood you're familiar with, even if you don't live in as far as these characters go. Nice cars, the kids all play on the sports teams, the parents all know each other kind of thing. Despite that, I didn't find any overwhelming cliches. Okay. Racial gender obtuseness. This is interesting. I'm not taking away any points. In fact, I had kind of an epiphany. Oh. Yes. And this is going to sound wicked, lame, and obvious or whatever, but I had been earlier in the week or earlier in the day, sometime this week, watching somebody on MSNBC talking about, a professor talking about how race was created, the concept of race. I'm way oversimplifying it here, but basically created is a political position by slave owners and stuff so that there would be a separation between black and white. And I've heard that before, and I always had a lot of trouble understanding it because in our society, race has been a thing. Mm-hmm. It's been a thing, right? And th- this professor had been saying that prior to race, like in Europe, you were from the country you were from. You were Italian or you were British or you were German, no matter what the color of your skin was. So watching this, unlike Mayor of Easttown with its very cliched black characters, yes. there were at least half a dozen biracial couples of different races there were people of all sorts of races and the race had absolutely nothing to do with who they were or their character or what their situation was there's just all these people this is going to sound stupid but i have have no better way of saying it all these people of different color and their colors didn't matter okay So it was not racial obtuseness, but what may be a world beyond racial recognition where people are just people who, I mean, it wasn't like, oh, here's the biracial couple. Oh, here's the black woman. Mm -hmm. It was just a hugely mixed cast, one that I cannot imagine would have existed in an American-made film. Yes. And the thing is, no matter what race the characters were, they could have been any race. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And they didn't worry about, okay, we can't make a black guy the bad guy or whatever. Watching it, having seen the professor, I know I'm going on and on about this, but I realized all of a sudden it takes a while sometimes to totally understand. You can intellectually understand something, but okay, this is what it means when race isn't a concept. Yeah. And I, like I said, I know it sounds lame. Okay. Lack of good visuals. I am not taking away any points. It was very nicely filmed. I have no idea where it was filmed. I can look it up somewhere in Britain. I guess, I'm going to assume, some nice little city. I don't know. if They never say what town it is or whatever. I don't know if it's supposed to be a suburb of London or a section of London or a city on its own. It was really nicely filmed. A little artistically sometimes, but it was good. 
Okay. Missing pieces. I'm going to have to take away. Oh. I've juggled between a point and half a point, but I think it's just going to be half a point. No glaring ones like there were in Mare, but just these little things. It's almost kind of funny. Like, for instance, if you're watching something, some, some mystery on TV, and they say, we found the missing woman's car at the airport. What? Tell me what you picture when someone says that. That it's somewhere in the parking lot at the airport? Yeah, what do you picture is a parking lot? Like a big parking lot. Right, okay. So like they either f- a big open air parking lot or, or a you know, parking lot. Right, garage, a paved like, parking yes. area with lots of cars yes, and planes exactly. maybe go. So they found a missing woman's car at the airport. Then they show them arriving and it's a dirt road. In the country, it looks like it could be Maine. Well, with like the Bodenham Airport. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it, like there's some trees and there's grass that's maybe up to your knees or whatever. And there's cars parked along the edge of the dirt road. And my thought was, okay, the producers... Here, I'm going to rip back the curtain a little. The producers couldn't get permission to film an airport parking garage or anything that looked like an airport parking garage. So this is the best they can do. And like the detective even says to the guy, the husband of the woman who was missing, so is this where you would normally park when you come to the airport kind of thing? And I'm thinking, so people just park on the edge of this dirt road in the country. (laughs) And the next thing is inaccuracies, anachronisms, nothing, no. Okay storytelling i'm not taking away any points it was told very well it's the kind of story where you think one of the premises that this young woman you know it starts with this guy and his wife and this isn't a spoiler because it happens in the first episode his wife then disappears after they have an argument about whether she faked a pregnancy or not this young woman goes up to people and tells them secrets about their life that nobody should know and it causes a lot of problems and when i was watching the first episode i'm like uh i don't want to see some show about this a young woman who goes up to people and tells them stuff like this and it causes problems uh, that sounds but i figured i'd stick with it it goes way beyond and just that bare bones thing. Hmm. I think I texted you when it when I decided. Okay, I'm sticking yeah, with it. it. The reason I decided is because there is a female, middle aged cop, you know, British miniseries style, who you like immediately. She becomes involved in several ways, and she's one of the main characters. One thing I would say is for people who've watched Mayor of Easttown. To also watch this, and granted the story's different and stuff, but compare the storytelling, the things we talked about in Mayor of Easttown, of where, like, plot things are just used and then kind of thrown away and that. Compare the storytelling in Mayor of Easttown with the storytelling in this, and you'll see that there's a... Oh, that reminds me of a missing piece. One instance where they did do that, where something happened to move the plot along that I felt wasn't handled right, these kids are at a party and one of the kids somehow ends up with the severed head of an alpaca covered in blood and the assumption is that he somehow beheaded this alpaca nobody none of his friends were as worried or as concerned or as even grossed out about that as you would be in real life Hmm. like it's not like he wrecked a car or lost his good coat or some other drunken stupid thing that happens at an outdoor party you really have to wonder about somebody who beheaded an alpaca 
and nobody brings it to that next level. It's just like, what are we going to do with this alpaca head now, you know? And so that was a definitely, in fact, I'm going to take away a point for missing pieces because I, I okay. just remember that because. But back to storytelling, storytelling, very, very good storytelling. You care about the characters. It's difficult to guess what's going to happen. There are some major developments in it that you just will not guess um there was one i did but i think we were maybe supposed to about who like towards the end in the seventh or eighth episode who one of the characters really is um freshness yes absolutely fresh i feel like they took harlan coben's very fresh book and were true to it and didn't say we have to make this a cliche laden stick we can take his book and make it into a movie and it was great Mm. repetition no none that bothered me none i can think of nobody like over telling something or anything like that and beating the drum none oh so it's got nine points nice and i highly recommend it it's on netflix it's called harlan coben's the stranger yes I i will watch that and i have to say i passed over it multiple 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 times over the past months when i was looking for something to watch and i'm not really sure why but i am glad there's been a couple adaptations of his books on netflix that i watched that one was so so and part of the problem was it american no it was british both of the ones i saw of his were british and i think part of it was it wasn't the story it was i think one of them i didn't like one of the actors i can't remember but i mean it was good yeah this is good and it's funny speaking of the actors and i told you this everybody in it looked vaguely familiar to me like i said there's like a dozen british actors and they're all in everything yeah his mom and um, i are watching Broadchurch, and it's like everybody's been in other stuff you know right and and i have to tell you it it was eight episodes and i can't remember what night i started watching it but i'm like okay i'll watch three or four and go to bed i watch i (gasps) watched into the seventh episode and then i finally said i have to go to bed and i must have been a weeknight it must have been a night when i'd work the next morning or i had something to do the next morning i'm like i have to go to bed and watch this but I wanted to stay up and watch all it. I could not oh, yeah. stop watching it. Okay. And I commend filmmakers who will take a really good book and it's just saying, hey, this is a really good book. It'll make a good miniseries. Okay, now let's rip it apart and, and make it crap. That they will take a really good book and make it. And the acting in this was was just top notch. None of the actors, I mean, maybe our British fans recognize, like I recognize like, oh, they look familiar, but they're not as far as I know, big names, at least not here, except for Stephen Ray. The acting was just really every single character, including the kids, outstanding. It's just all the, all around an outstanding show. Well, I can't wait to see it. Yeah. I think that the good thing about all these streaming services now is that they do make things into series, uh, books into series, instead of trying to make it into a two-hour movie. If you do it right, you can really do a good job right. uh, and not get who people who read the book pissed off, do the story justice. You know? Right. Like, watching this, I can't imagine it being boiled down into a two-hour movie because of all the stuff that happens. Yeah, definitely recommend it. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's getting quite late, and on, tomorrow's a work day. Thank all our patrons. Yeah, all of them. In fact, everybody the who photos the, that you took today, I do 
for our patrons and any who actually become patrons between now and when I do this, which will probably be next weekend, I, I do plan to send out a newsletter. In it, we'll have some photos from some of the recent main locations of our main. We've gotten lots of Facebook likes mm. this month. Realize our Facebook page, there isn't a huge amount of activity on it because it's not a group. Like we've said before, we really don't have time for there But I do group. thank people for liking us, and I hope that you share if you think that there's somebody that you know that would like to listen to us we, and it, i love the messages we get and yes everyone's... everybody's welcome to send us messages through facebook messaging becky's the i usually end up social digital, digital <laughs> director but <laughs> melanie our friend and i i know i'm probably pronouncing your last name wrong melanie melanie ratanson from New Zealand sent us a very nice note with some suggestions and comments and we love getting stuff like that and it's so cool too that somebody all the way as far around the world from us as you could be would listen to us that's why she um, likes our accents (laughs) a lot of people don't but I guess I'm next do you have any ideas no I had some ideas, but to tell you the truth, I just haven't had time to think about it. Oh, and I wanted to say to our listeners, you may notice the schedule has gotten a little wonky. We are getting one out every two weeks, but just between, it's mostly my work schedule. But sometimes mine gets, Not Becky's, but also we've had internet issues. There are some nights we just can't record because the internet is so bad. Just, I know we were getting them out consistently on Mondays, and now it's more like kind of Wednesdays, and it mostly it's because we can't, we were recording on Sunday nights, and because of the internet, we just can't. But anyway. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. They Penny, uh, sorry, I got it. Penny just came down. I'm going to text you this and is staring at me. She just sits there and stares at me with her funny little face. Aww. Oh, little girl. She's so sad.